You're listening to Station F, the podcast. From the world's largest startup campus in Paris. This is Station F, the podcast, and I'm your host, Roxanne Varza. This week, we deep dive into a recent study published by Station F. We teamed up with 200 VC funds and Indeed and Mazars in order to study talent and the future of work. We'll be featuring both startups and VCs to discuss the findings. And I'm also here with Cindy, my co-host. Hey, Cindy. Hey, Rox. And hi, listeners. So for the startups part, we'll have Pascal Gauthier, the CEO of Ledger, our famous French unicorn, and also Salma Bakou, co-founder and CEO of Sifflet, a future 40 company at Station F. For the VC part, we'll be featuring Berenice Magistretti, who is a VC in residence at Visionaries, and Dhruv Jain, who is an investor at Bessemer Venture Partners in Europe. Let's kick it off with the entrepreneurs first. This podcast is supported by TikTok. From expressing your creativity to discovering new trends amongst diverse communities, TikTok offers infinite opportunities for you to engage with users through creative and authentic content. So... What if TikTok was the asset your business needs today to thrive tomorrow? Hi, Pascal and Salma. Thank you so much for joining. Hi, Cindy. Thank you. Very happy to be here. Hi, guys. Happy to be with you. Awesome. So before we dive into the core of our topic today, which is to talk about uh, talent in the European ecosystem, can I just ask yourselves to quickly introduce your company and how big you are today? So my name is Salma. I'm co-founder and CEO of a company called Sifle Data. Um, Sifle is a data observability platform. In short, what we do is we help companies achieve more trust in their data and um, fasten the adoption of data-driven decision-making. Awesome. Pascal? Um, so I'm Pascal Gauthier, I'm CEO at Ledger. Uh, Ledger is a well-known security company in the crypto space. Uh, we build something that is called hardware wallets to secure the private keys of millions of users on the planet. Um, and our mission is to make them secure, but also easy to use. So we have an interface called Ledger Live, which allows you to buy, sell, swap, stake, I mean, anything you want to do with your crypto, and now your NFTs as well. Uh, so that's what Ledger does. That's the consumer-facing product. And of course, we have a great enterprise business, Ledger Enterprise Solution, which is basically exactly what I described, but this time for financial institutions. That's what I do. Yeah. And how big is the Ledger team? Yeah. Ledger today is 500 people. We're going to grow the team to 1,400 next year. We're based in Paris. We have our own uh, production unit in Vierzon. We have engineers uh, sort of everywhere in France. Uh, we've opened Montpellier, uh, Grenoble. I think we're about to open Nantes and, and, and Bordeaux. Uh, we have engineers in Ukraine. We have teams in New York, in Singapore, in Switzerland, in London. Um, so, and we're growing aggressively in all regions. Okay, awesome. I have so many follow-up questions about this, but we'll hold it for a little while and uh, get back to it really quick. Um, Salma, how many are you and your team today? Yeah, so we're going to be 12 in January, so way much smaller than Ledger. <laughs> um, but we quadrupled actually on the size of our team. We were three co-founders um, in September and we're growing very aggressively. Um, we're similar to a lot of the companies nowadays in the sense that we adopted a remote first kind of strategy. Um, and so we have engineers in uh, France, in Germany. Um, soon we're going to have somebody in Spain. Um, yeah, and then we, we continue on growing. Awesome. Um, we actually really love having the two of you here together because while well, Salma Sifflet is a future 40, one of the most promising uh, early stage companies at Station F this year, and Ledger, a huge French unicorn. Um, and so we'd love to get the input of the two of you, so two very different perspectives, into the topic of talent. Um, so to start, uh, we want to talk about diversity, um, diversity in the European startup ecosystem, um, more specifically on the talent aspect of things. And so in our study, we found that uh, there's an average of 32% of women in companies. That number is slightly higher uh, in sales teams at 34% and a lot lower for tech teams and management teams. 
And so to start, I'd like to know how your numbers compare and if you feel like this number is relevant uh, and accurate from what you're seeing. Okay. Uh, who do you want to go first? Yeah, I can go first because I, I, I actually I'm not very proud of our numbers when it comes to um, gender diversity. So actually, when looking at these numbers, and this is something that I mentioned to you earlier, Cindy, um, 32% of women in startups, I actually think that number is a bit generous because when I look in the ecosystem around me, especially for, you know, tech slash deep tech companies, um, I think that number is way smaller. Um, so I think, you know, this number is taking into account the fact that, you know, there is a lot of diversity um, of, you know, offering within startups, uh, which means that it kind of balances out eventually. Um, now, when we, with regards to CFLA specifically, um, and this is actually something that I struggle with personally as, you know, um, somebody who leads kind of the recruitment efforts, um, it, it's just really, really challenging to find female talent and, and you know, and, and young females who are willing to take the plunge and bet on a new startup. And it's it's just in general, there's a bit of risk aversion um, and it, it, it's really sad. Um, now, our numbers with CFLA, I think in January, we're going to be 25% females. Um, um, which is, you know, mediocre, um, in my opinion, um, but we'll continue. I mean, it, it's also, you have to keep in mind the fact that we're relatively early stage. And so right now our teams uh, or our team is, is mainly, you know, engineers and um, people on the product side, data scientists, data engineers. Um, and so it's, it's, you know, naturally you kind of suffer from that gender bias uh, when it comes to these technical roles and it's reflected in how the company is set up today but um it's definitely something that's on my mind and especially being a female founder and a female ceo of a tech company um it's something that i think about all the time and, and i'm really looking forward to um kind of changing the future right right pascal well <clears throat> it's funny because you asked about diversity and then you know you 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 talk about the male female ratio in the company um for me, diversity is, is a more generic term that covers um, more than just you know men and women in the company. Um, and I think you know diversity is one thing when you're 12 people. Diversity is a different thing when you're 500 growing to 2,000. Um, and you know I think diversity in general is uh, you know there I think there is a misconception somewhere. I think you know diversity is important. Uh, when it comes, when I think about my company, I think about performance, uh, and I think about like hiring the best. So, um, and when I think about diversity, I think about you know diversity as a tool for performance and hiring the best. Meaning that you know at Ledger, we have a strict policy of no discrimination. <laughs> you know, like whoever you are, wherever you come from, whatever is your color of skin, whether you're a man or a woman, etc. Like if you're good, you're welcome at Ledger. Uh, and so we, if, if there is one thing that we, uh, where we discriminate at Ledger is we, we discriminate on talent, for sure. If you're a great talent, then we want you. There is a strong uh, discrimination there. When it comes to our diversity number, there is a, there is a score uh, in France. So actually France does it pretty nicely, like, you know, there is a thing that our HR team does, and uh, on this diversity score, I think we, we rank almost like 80 on, on 100, which is a pretty good score for a tech company. And, uh, and it takes in consideration, you know, sort of various things that companies are doing for diversity. So it, you know, I think that Ledger is a, is a good student when it comes to, to this, but, it, but it's, something that, that it's something that we're doing it's it's not something that we aim for. It's like I don't know if you understand what I mean. It's just like because we are because we have no barriers for diversity, then you know everyone feels welcome at Ledger, uh, and I think that's that's the most important thing. So we've we've achieved diversity without really wanting diversity. We've achieved diversity because we discriminate on talent, and the, you know life is, life is good because you have talent everywhere. So now. Now, the, the, the problem with the discussion around men and women is, well, it depends what you're recruiting. You know, sometimes uh, if you want to achieve, you know, the, the first, first of all, there's no reason why you should be 50, 50 or 60, 40 or 30 or whatever. But, you know, that's, you know, when you're building a business aggressively and, and if you need to hit your goals, I think that, you know, founders and entrepreneurs need to be focused on performance. 
And especially when you're a young company, like you need to survive. So when you're in survival mode, you need to do whatever you need to do in order to survive. Once you reach, once you reach like a certain level, and once you have, you know, more money that you can spend, then you know, of course, then you have more time to sort of model the company around, like you know, uh, what you would want it to be, or pay more attention into this detail or the other detail, etc. But you know, I think you know, going fast to market and building big businesses then gives you the luxury to do many things. And I think you know, young entrepreneurs. Because I, I hear this question sometimes when I speak with many entrepreneurs and, you know, sort of the reaction that Salma had, like, oh, I'm ashamed that, I mean, you shouldn't be ashamed. Like, it, it's okay. Like, you, need to, <laughs> you need to build a business. Yeah. You need, to, you need to go, go, go. And then you worry about this once you have a big business, you know. And, 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 and also, you don't discriminate based on, I'm sure that you don't discriminate anyone based on anything. Like, I'm sure that when you interview someone, you, you, you're not thinking, oh, my God, like, she's a woman. I'm not going to hire her. Yeah, no, for sure, for sure. So, so you need to build a big business. You need to grow fast. You need to grow aggressively, etc. And while you do it, like of course, you, there are certain tools that you use. Like, and, and the tools are, you know, no discrimination whatsoever on anything but talents. And usually, it's a good tool. And finally, what I would say is, your team it, it should be a mirror of your customers. Uh, and uh, and you see it in many businesses, like you know, many businesses have like you know single type of customers, for example. And, and so the team usually is a mirror of those customers because if you want to understand them, then you, know, you need to mirror your customers. At Ledger, we are very lucky to have customers everywhere on the planet. We ship products in every country in the world, 195. And so if we want to understand our customers, then we need to have a bunch of nationalities. So I think at Ledger, we have 35 nationalities already. Um, and uh, and that's not because we're cool. That's just because you know our team is a mirror of our customers. Um, and so you need male talent, you need female talent, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so in the end, last thing I would say is you know sometimes um, no, actually that's all I would say. So <laughs> your team should mirror your customers, and that's the most important. And grow business is the first thing that entrepreneurs should do. Okay, no, it's super interesting. Um all those things that you mentioned because when we when we talked about the diversity in our study it's yes uh, gender diversity but also in terms of international talent and we found that about 29 percent of european startups have um international uh, have uh, that percentage of international employees um, and that number being slightly higher for fintech we also we also found that 34 percent of companies uh surveyed have implemented diversity driven policies um but obviously this number is a lot higher, so it goes up to 61% when it comes to companies that are more mature. Uh, in other words, have more than 20 employees. Do you have any um, policies with this regard in your company? It could be anti-harassment policies, parental leave policies, um, policies that drive inclusion in your company. Well, anti-harassment for sure. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we want people to be happy and live a happy life at Ledger. Uh, yeah, there are various things, you know, I think in the end, what we want to measure is, you know, we want performance and we, if to have performance, we want people to be happy and live a happy life. And the first value at the company is, you know, if family and health comes always first, that's key. Like, that's why I tell my employees all the time, you know, people say, oh my God, like I need to take a day because I need to take care of my family. I'm like, sure, go. So, you know, we don't... We just do, we don't think too much about this. I think if you get the core human values where they should be, you know, then it works. Because if you put like family and health first, then sure, like, you know, uh, if you want to take your parental leave, take your parental leave. Take care of your kid, like, you know, that's that's okay. Like, you know, nobody, nobody's gonna judge you at leisure because you take care of your family. Actually, it's could probably be the reverse. It's like, you know, if you don't take care of your family, then, you know, maybe you don't, uh, you don't share the same, the same the same values and then you know and then again we're not judging on this in the sense that if you feel that you need to work hard right now then work hard too like that's okay so you know i think we we, we appreciate people we appreciate you know we we don't force ourselves to be anything we just apply you know very ethical values and usually you know that works right this is something that you spell and, out and in tech and, and by the way in tech i've never seen i've worked in tech all my life uh, and i've never seen like uh, a woman or a man, for that matter, not being able to take a parental leave. But usually, tech companies are very inclusive in that sense that you know it's uh, it's okay to to get pregnant, it's okay to have babies. If we take that example. 
Yeah, I would just add uh, from my point of view, at least at Sifle, um, we, so, I mean, with regards to your question, Cindy, we don't have policies per se. Um, I mean, we're relatively early. Um, that said, we do try to incorporate some core values within our team because, I mean, I, I agree with what Pascal says in the sense that, yes, right now, our number one and number two and number three priority is really, you know, performance and making sure we get the right people at the door and people that will perform and carry on, you know, the team, um, you know, execution power. Um, but I, I do, I'm also a big believer, having worked at some very large companies in the past where, you know, um, the notion of culture and values gets diluted um, as the company gets bigger. And I'm, I'm very aware of that. And I want to be, make sure that at Cifle we at least have the basics, um, you know, kind of in check before we start growing and before we start, you know, um, getting too much caught off in the, oh my God, let's just grow fast and let's just execute fast and, you know, we don't care about anything else. And so with regards to some of the, some of the values and some of the things that we've implemented, so um, not particularly with regards to, you know, setting some diversity policies or, you know, to me, like anti-sexual harassment or taking leaves and parental leaves, to me, that's, you know, basics. Um, and it's it's actually even the law in France, so it's not even something that you can shy away from. Uh, thank God for that. Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I worked in some other continents, and I can assure you that it's not the same, so we're very happy about that in France. Um, now, we do, for example, have um, every Monday um, at 2 p.m., we have a meeting where we just talk about, you know, our mental health and um, are we too stretched? Are we close to a burnout? Is there anything that the team needs to be aware of so that, you know, we can create a more of an empathetic culture, especially being a remote first company. Some of our employees we've never met actually face to face. Um, and so to me, that kind of helps um, creating an environment of, you know, empathy and collaboration. Um, and as Pascal said, you know, all the good values and policies kind of establish themselves naturally once right. you have a good basis. Right. Uh, well said. Um, super well said. It's funny, it's, funny, it's funny what you say, Salma, because it's true that, you know, sometimes uh, we, you know, we ask those questions to French entrepreneurs, but actually, you know, France is a very different game. And, you know, France in Europe, actually, because if you take Germany, Scandinavia, uh, like even the UK, actually, you know, the, the, the policies around this are, uh, are really in motion. Like, you know, the law, actually, it's funny because I had a discussion with a, with a, with a female employee, actually, not a female employee, female partner. And um, and it's a private conversation, so I'm not going to name anyone. But 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 it, it's funny because she 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 was pregnant, and then of course she, she was she was due, and then she she wanted to to work right away, but actually by law she couldn't. <laughs> actually, the law in France, and this is where it becomes weird because all these policies now, like for for the woman who wants to work right away, and by the way, she's an amazing mother, etc. So you know. No problem. Like she, she just works hard, and she just knew that she had to do it, and she could do it. Um, but, but she couldn't. Like you know, by law, you can't actually uh, give up your congé maternité if you're if you're going in French, which is which is intriguing. It's like you know, no, no, no. You have to take a break. Like please don't come back to work. Uh, and so I think that, you know the flip the flip side of all these policies is you know people aren't free to do what they want anymore. Like they're forced to do certain things. So we should be sort of careful to push sort of too much policies for the greater good. And, you know, sometimes uh, we should, uh, you know, competition is the best, is the best thing in growing business aggressively because in the end, you know, all, a lot of laws exist because the market isn't liquid enough. And so if you're trapped into a company, then you're forced, like, and if you're a shit CEO, and then you're forced to, you know, to, to, to obey the, the, the company that are, that are really bad for you, then it, it's terrible. But if you can change job and, you know, go to the next shop that is, that is next door in the street, then 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 it's fine, and that's that's what's happening in Silicon Valley. I mean, if you if you look at the minimums in the Silicon Valley, it's like ten day holidays, but nobody's get ten day holidays because you know Google gives you thirty days free food and yeah. free everything. So uh, competition and growing business is the best thing to do. I think. Right, Pascal. I think this is kind of a really interesting topic when you talk about competition. Because one of the things that we really wanted to study uh, was also um, hiring, so the talent pool that we have here in Europe. And we found that for almost 70% of startups in Europe, um, openings for tech roles uh, are most frequent, followed by sales and marketing. Um, so what does it look like for the two of you, um, the recruitment landscape here in Europe? 
Uh, is this a challenge that you have considering all the competition uh, that is ongoing? Well, I, I can take this one first. I mean, you know, as we are recruiting heavily in Europe and sort of everywhere in the world, I think, again, the, the recruitment challenge really depends on first the size of your business, your competitive landscape in the world, like who are your competition with, et cetera, et cetera. You know, at Ledger, we're in competition with, well, we're in a blue ocean. So right now, we, you know, everyone in our space is, is, is growing. Uh, and, but but we, with Portalan, we're in competition with like the big, biggest companies in the space. We're in competition with Coinbase, Kraken, et cetera, et cetera. You know, companies that are really worth like, you know, you know billions of dollars, much more than us right now. <clears throat> and so the competition for talent is raging and it's global. Uh, and so when I think about where I'm going to hire my talent, uh, when it comes to sales and marketing, now we recruit a lot in the U.S. and we actually bring people to Paris. Um, the good thing is, you know, that would have been probably difficult to do at a different time with a, with, with a different company. But the good thing is right now, if you're Ledger, if you're in crypto, and if you're in France, you know, France, the good news is France is super sexy. And people actually want to relocate to Paris, even if they work in the Valley, even if they work in Los Angeles, even if they work in New York. There is a bunch of talent that came to Paris just to be in Paris and to be with Ledger and to, to build crypto. So there is a real challenge. But anyway, it comes back to, you know, your team has to mirror what your business is. And so there is no way that we're going to build this business. The USA being like 40% of our business today. There's no way that we're building this business without, without like a strong US team. And if we want to do this right, then the US team has to come to Paris. And this is, this is what we did. Um, and, uh, and when it comes to tech, it's a different gameplay. Right. Um, Salma, do you have any comments to add? Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, from my point of view as, the, you know, a small company um, or small startup, um, definitely we, we feel like uh, obviously there's, you know, a lot of competition in hiring. And actually we feel it from both sides, from, you know, some of the big established tech companies, but also... Um, thanks to how flourishing the, um, the startup ecosystem is becoming in France and in Europe in general. Um, what I would say, though, is at, at least for us and, and the kind of uh, policy that we've adopted is, you know, we see um, seed stage, which is where we are, and, you know, kind of this um, starting up and, and, small, and small early steps. Um, the company is very vulnerable. And so, yes, we want to be able to hire the best people, execute fast, um, you know, go fast and do everything that we want to do on our product roadmap. But at the same time, it is really crucial for us to be careful about who we recruit and how we recruit. And, um, you know, because ultimately our first 10 employees are going to become um, our, um, you know, image to the world. And these first 10 employees are going to bring the next 10 employees and so on and so forth. And so when we were hiring, we really put an emphasis on um, network and making sure that the people we hire were really, you know, our partners um, in building Cifle and building the products and all of that. Um, and I think we did a pretty good job at that because, as I mentioned in the beginning, we were able to um, quadruple on the size of the team from September to now. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it remains a constant challenge because you have to keep this, um, I mean, the when you're hiring somebody, it's like you're selling to a new customer almost. So you have to keep the sexiness of your business out there. You have to show people that you're building something amazing and that they're going to be much more happier working for you than working for somebody else. Because unfortunately, the reality is, especially with a lot of funding going around, um, you can no longer just compete on salary and ESOP. You, you really have to bring something more to the table if you want to attract the best people, especially at the early stages. Right. Do you feel like tech roles are more difficult to fill than uh, other like sales marketing or other roles in general in um, Europe? I, I think it depends on the product um, and the value proposition of your company. So in our uh, case, uh, given we have a heavy tech um, side of what we do, um, it's easier for us to recruit engineers, software engineers, uh, data scientists, data engineers, because they can understand the challenge that they'll be working on very quickly, um, you know, and get excited about it. It's not the same when you hire uh, marketers or salespeople, because there's a bit more conviction that needs to be made in order to have them buy into your dream and what you're trying to achieve. Right. Pascal, are you seeing the same? I think, you know, we... Um... <clears throat> 
the, the businesses are not all the same and you know the ledger is in a different is in a place right now where we have a we have built an employer's an employer's brand um and we're in a very sexy environment i mean i remember trying to recruit uh, people in 2014 in crypto i mean <laughs> it was it, it was not the same, <laughs> was not the same. <laughs> i can imagine uh, and like and, and i was i was Pascal Gauthier, i was coming out of crypto etc so i had a reputation but even with my reputation like you know most of the interviews that i was having at the time were very disappointing in the end for me <laughs> people were uh, not keen like didn't understand crypto etc etc and so you know a few years after ledger is a probably is the company with the best employer's brand that I've ever worked with um, and so right now we we are in a good position to to recruit the top talent but then it's a, then it's a different now it's a different problem that we have to face is how do you maintain like super high quality and recruit the best talent when you have to recruit now you know 800 people uh, next year and uh, and uh, you know to recruit the best talent at scale now is the game and that's that's a different game that's you know that that's that's actually very difficult but this is where you this is where we have to succeed because in order to build a great company you need in the end perfect execution and perfect execution is just talent so the talent war is sort of key because we talk about like you know artificial intelligence and how robots will replace humans but the good news for humans is actually there is not no such thing as human talent to build great companies at least in 2021 and so uh, that's going to be our, our next challenge is like uh, recruiting aggressively hiring the best and sourcing them you know everywhere on the planet you said something that's that's really uh, you know spoke to me in a very particular way building this sexy brand of you know a company that almost naturally attracts top talent how how did that look like for you in the early days of ledger um <clears throat> you know it's it, it's part luck part you you know you work for it um i think the what we did good at ledger and usually um, something that entrepreneurs entrepreneurs don't really do at the beginning is we invested a lot into our GNA team right away. So uh, an administrative team, so support team with you know HR, legal, finance. Interesting. Uh, and um, and we've always recruited like sort of top talents. And and Ledger is recognized in France and internationally to have you know one of the best GNA team sort of uh, in the space. And actually, you can see that because every time that we see someone from the GNA team. When someone leaves the, the the legal team at Ledger, usually they become a general counsel of, of the next forty startup. You know, so so we uh, and, and and same for the HR team, same for finance team, etc. Like we have extremely good people, and we invested a lot of money upfront in building a great team because this is the only way that you can scale. And so therefore, you know, the your employees brand your employees brand is built by two things. It's it's always the people. So it's built by you know. The people that your candidates meet when they meet with the company, and so they meet with the HR team. They're like, "Wow, this is very professional." Uh, they they see the process and they're like, "Wow, these guys, you know, behave like they're the already the 800 pound gorilla." You know, it's very difficult to, to to not see that Ledger is already a 10 billion dollar company. Like when you meet with Ledger, you know, it feels like it's a grown up company. It's very mature. Like you have the same process that you would have in a in a much bigger company. But this is this is because we've done it uh, right away. And finally, but, 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 but more importantly, it's management and leadership. You know, I think people make the mistake to think that you know people come from money or uh, based etc. It's something that you already said, Salma. But it's like you know, leadership and management. That's why people join a company. That's why people leave a company. Yes, it's eighty percent the reason why, and there is no other reason. Like people say, oh, you know. We just lost, you know, an engineer because he's making more money outside. I'm like, no, no, no. We just lost an engineer because he was not, he was not feeling loved, like he was not managed properly, and that's why, that, that's why he left. Like nobody leaves for money. That that doesn't really exist. And and because before they leave for money, like you, know, you have the discussion, and if they're really good, then you know you pay up and you know you figure you figure something out. But people need to put their knowledge. So I think the two things that we covered is. Uh, great GNA uh, team, amazing HR process, and of course, uh, we've hired like a bunch of great leaders and managers, like you know Ian Rogers joining us from LVMH, 
uh, a year ago, I mean, that was a great hire because Ian then brings with him a ton of talent and everybody wants to work with Ian. Like Ian is the coolest guy on the planet. Who doesn't want to work with Ian? And so that's, uh, that's how you build great teams. Cool. Thank you for that. All right. So we're just going to, we're about up our time. So we're going to just wrap up um, with some questions. Pascal and Selma, I want to ask you, so what are some key takeaways uh, regarding the European talent landscape for startups? Um, where do you think it shines and where do you think it needs to improve? Um, I can start with this one really quickly. Um, I mean, again, um, being from, you know, a diverse background, being a female founder, obviously I am more sensitive to issues around diversity and, and especially coming from an industry. I was in finance for the past six years and um, I, I don't need to explain further, but it's an extremely male-dominated environment. Um, I'm naturally more sensitive to these issues. And so I think where we need to do better is really in general around creating more role models um, in tech, representing diversity, representing success in diversity, and really giving young talent, whether it's females or people from, you know, different environments or people from different backgrounds, to show in more people that, you know, you don't have to be in a certain stereotype to succeed and get things done um, and break into tech. And so I think um, Station F is doing a great job about that. As I mentioned to you in the beginning, the female uh, founders program and the fighters program that I was part of recently as a jury, I think these initiatives um, are really good and there should be more of those in general um, in you know tech incubators and in startups that are more established like Ledger and some others to just show and emphasize um, that this you know leadership and mentorship uh, models to encourage more young talent and and naturally build diversity actually without really forcing it as Pascal said in the beginning which I really appreciate. Well said. Pascal? You know I think people should um... <clears throat> I believe in personal responsibility, and I believe that you know to build a business today is never been you know more sexy and sort of easier, etc. I think you know everything is out there, so anyone uh, can grow a business, build a team, be part of something great, uh, and you know, and I would say that you know it's a personal responsibility to do so, and so the only thing I would say is. Europe is probably the best place for talents right now. If you if you become like a true uh, European, and if you grow your business in Europe, I mean, you know, we, we have we have some of the best talents, and all stereotypes are true. You know, it's fantastic to work with the Germans; they're very efficient people. The Scandies are great. Like you know, the French, we have something. Like you know, the Italians are amazing. Uh, even the Brits are fantastic, uh, and that's a joke. Uh, <laughs> but uh, so I think you know Europe is probably the best talent pool, and it's the entrepreneur's responsibility to understand how to play with this and to 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 scale very fast. Because again, it's it comes always back to diversity is something that is really rich, and diversity is something that really helps a company. And so you should thrive towards diversity not because you have to or because you think it's the right thing to do, but just because it's it's great for your business. Yes, um, and uh, and I think that's how people should think and Europe is the best place to, to, to build diversity because Europe is a very you know, diverse ecosystem uh, and our societies are very open to bringing sort of external talent for everywhere in the world in Europe to, to build great things. And so I think you know, Europe right now is a great place to be wherever you're coming from, wherever you are, you know, whether you're a man or woman, etc. It is a great place to be. With Station F and you know in France, but everywhere in Europe, there are so many things happening to help you build great businesses. And so, people now should look at themselves and think, okay, now me, what am I going to do, and how am I going to win? Like, you know, we need to win. It's important to create big businesses in Europe. And so, right now, I don't feel there are any barriers. Wherever you are, if you're in Europe, you're good. Build your business, join a team. It's time. I love the winning. Uh, mindset Pascal and I don't think we could end on a better note <laughs> so Pascal and Salma thank you both so much for sharing with us today thank you Cindy avec plaisir merci Cindy and now we'll move on to the VC part well Berenice and Dhruv it's great to have you both with us here today welcome thanks so much for having us thanks excited to be here 
Super. Well, I want to dive into some of the data that we have from our talent study, obviously. Um, but before we get started, for our listeners who may not know who you are, be as familiar with your backgrounds, can you guys please introduce yourself? So Berenice, I'm going to start with you. Sure. Thanks, Roxanne. Um, so I'm Berenice, originally from Switzerland. Um, I have a background in tech journalism. Um, so I was a reporter for a couple of years, uh, freelanced first for TechCrunch and Wired UK, and then moved to San Francisco for three years where I was a VC reporter at VentureBeat, uh, focused a lot on diversity and inclusion, um, spotlighting women in tech and female founders, and um, with a particular focus on femtech, so women's health and sexual wellness. And uh, I moved back to Europe two years ago, based in London, have been gradually transitioning to the investment side, uh, made a few angel investments, um, joined some great communities like Alma Angels, uh, where I, I learned a lot. And now I'm, uh, I'm part of Visionaries Club, which is a Berlin-based fund focusing on B2B in Europe. Super. Thanks so much. And Dhruv? Yeah, um, so my name is Dhruv. Um, <clears throat> I am uh, an investor at Bessemer Venture Partners um, based in London, and uh, I'm originally from the U.S. I grew up on the East Coast and joined Bessemer in 2016 in our New York office um, and, you know, really have been at the firm for almost my entire career now. Um, I moved to London a year and a half ago to help open our new office that's covering Europe uh, as we're a global fund and we're doing more and more investing, especially outside of uh outside of Silicon Valley in California. And um, and yeah, looking forward to the discussion. Super. Well, both of you have spent time in the US, now based in Europe. So very exciting to uh, hear your different opinions on some of the data that we found. I want to start with the founder profiles. Um, from our survey, which was primarily France-based companies, we saw that on average, teams have 2.6 co-founders. So that's between two to three co-founders, obviously. Um, what are you guys actually observing on the ground? Is this the ideal number of co-founders, especially for those solo co-founders out there? Is it kind of a no-go territory? Berenice, what do you think? I mean, I think that, you know, um, first as a journalist, I interviewed a lot of founders and obviously some, you know, uh, were and still are solo founders and they're doing, you know, very, very well. And now I'm, I'm starting, you know, to meet team with my VC hat on. And I think that, I mean, it is... I think much harder to build a company by yourself. I mean, it's, I think, you know, it can be emotionally draining, very discouraging. You have massive highs, massive lows. And I think, you know, being able to share that with one or two co-founders, um, you know, is, is a great thing. Um, so that, and, and I think that it also adds, you know, diversity of talent. So if you have two to three people who have different set of skills um, and where you can brainstorm and, and tap into different uh, qualifications, I think, you know, that can really help uh, the startup, you know, scale faster with different networks. But having said that, I, I've seen, you know, solo founders do extremely well. So I think it, it, it it's really a case by case. Yeah. Drew, what do you think? Do you think that two to three is really the ideal? Uh, it's a good question. I, I I would have to go back and look at all of our most successful companies and and then kind of see. Um, but anecdotally, I do think that we've definitely seen more success probably with com with companies that are founded by more than one founder, so so non solo founders. Um, and and that's probably also just because I think it's harder to do it as a solo founder. So kind of the market regulates itself in that most solo founders end up finding someone to work on with. Um, but I actually don't necessarily uh, think either one is, is better or worse. I, I think it truly really just comes down to the individual. I am involved with one company who's, who was started by a solo founder, and it's, it's a really exciting company. So um, I, I guess these things come in kind of all shapes and sizes, at least uh, from what I've seen. Super. And what's the reason that this number would not be higher? Is there a disadvantage? Do you guys see teams with like four or five, six, I don't know, seven uh, co-founders ever? And is, is there a reason that this tends to actually be just over one? I mean, you know, I think that uh, we, at some point, you know, when it comes to hiring and decision making and, and kind of splitting these responsibilities, I think it can get more challenging the mo more co-founders you are. Um, I think just in terms of efficiency um, and speed, you kind of 
want to try and limit it to two, three, max four co-founders, in my opinion. Um, I think it also comes down to the equity, right? I mean, how much, you know, are you, are you splitting the, the equity uh, equally? And then will investors, you know, be happy if um, there, there's just kind of a, a bit of a, a bigger number on the cap table? So, I, yeah, I think these things are important to take into account. Yeah, I, I agree. I think everything to you just said, especially the equity piece. Um, if you have three, four, five co-founders, how do you keep everyone incentivized? Especially as you dilute, as you as you raise more money, and and some of the roles start tend to start overlapping. And so I think like the equity piece is really important. Getting it, making sure everyone feels equally compensated and and motivated. And it's very tough if you have three or four or five co-founders. Super. Yeah, I, I agree with, with both of you, and re- especially with regards to the complexity of the cap table, decision-making, raising funding later on. Um, another number that came out of our study is the average age of co-founders. So it turns out to be 34, um, which for me actually seems quite high at Station F. On average, it's about 31. But what this is all pointing to, in my opinion, is that startup founders are actually not fresh out of school. They're not youngsters. We actually have roughly half of the founders that have previous working experience, a third of them that have previously actually created or worked in companies. Um, And then we also have a lot of them that actually have higher education, roughly 80% have a master's degree. How does this compare with what you guys are seeing? Does this actually translate to the companies that are, are pitching you and that you're investing in? Yeah. I mean, maybe, uh, I'm happy to take that one first. I think, um, it does. It really does translate. I mean, I think this idea that, you know, we're all backing 17-year-old Mark Zuckerbergs, I, I think that's like sort of <laughs> a relic of the past. And um, I also think that for me, what I look at much more than age is the number of tries they've done before. And I always, you know, if someone's 30, 35, 40 years old, I think that's great. But even better would be if they've tried to start a company or maybe even tried and failed two or three times already. Because to me, it's just a good indication that they, they just keep, they really want it and they're really hungry for it. And so I actually prefer sometimes to see people who have who have tried and failed a couple of times, and maybe as a result, they're a few years older as well. Very interesting. Berenice, you feel the same way? Yeah, totally. I mean, I think that, you know, when you have uh, an individual who, you know, uh, as Drew said, um, has tried and failed and has all these learnings and sort of, uh, you know, becomes wiser with these experiences and kind of can infuse these learnings into into the new venture, I think that's incredibly valuable. But having said that, you know, you have so many successful founders out there, first time founders who have built billion dollar companies. So I think for me, it really comes down to, you know, the individual and what his or her motivation and values are and why um, he or she is is doing this, you know, in the long run. And I think, you know, as an angel investor, I've backed, you know, uh, Gen Zers who are in their early 20s. And I've also backed a mom of five who's in her late 50s and she's a second time founder. And so I'm just really excited to, you know, because I think both have, you know, very unique perspectives on, on their industry and markets. And um, I, I really do believe in, in just uh, diversity of, of gender, age, uh, experience experience, uh, you know, uh, in, in every sense. Super. And I think those are some incredible examples you gave that kind of reinforces the point that Drew made about we're not just backing 17-year-old Mark Zuckerbergs anymore. Um, but I, I am curious to know, because we've kind of mentioned people who've maybe launched a few companies, um, but what do, what is your recommendation? If somebody, if a founder were to say, today I'm considering launching, you know, a, a young graduate, I'm considering launching a company or getting some work experience prior. Do you guys tend to lean in one direction with regards to what's the best moment in your career to start a company? I'm happy to to start with that one. I think there's never a perfect moment in the same way that I think, um, and I don't speak from experience because I'm not a parent, but I don't think there's ever a perfect moment to become a parent. So I think, you know, uh, if 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 you feel it and, and you want to go with it, then go. I don't think you need to go do an MBA or, you know, necessarily have some work experience. I think if you have the passion and motivation, you should definitely go for it, regardless of your age or, or life stage. I will say that, you know, if you really are fresh out of college, you, you will want to, you know, have like uh, one or two other co-founders who maybe have a bit more experience or a different skill set and otherwise also add, you know, very strategic advisors who can, you know, help guide you uh, within the industry that you're in. Drew? Yeah, I, 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 I once again, I, I totally agree. I think it can really come at any time. And um, I'm not sure I have a recommendation other than that, 
you know, oftentimes I see people credentialing themselves, which, you know, may or may not impact your ability to solve whatever problem you're trying to solve. And so I think if, if credentialing yourself is going to help you solve that problem, if you need to, you know, go start a legal tech startup, so you want to become a lawyer first, I think that might make sense. I mean, that's a long way to solve a problem. But in other cases, I do see sometimes people who are credentialing themselves, but then those credentials don't really apply to the problem that they're trying to solve, or, or maybe not that much. And so I would caution people a little bit on like this credentialing thing. I think it's like really resume building that we all are so wired to do, but uh, just being honest with yourself and when ourselves about it, is this really going to help me solve my, the core problem at, at hand? Um, and the other thing is, I think also experiencing the problem themselves. So I think there's probably two types of founders. There's founders who solve problems they've experienced and there's, problem, there's founders who solve problems they haven't experienced. And if you're solving a problem that you have experienced, then, you know, why wait? You know, what, what, what are you waiting for? Because if you're experiencing it, maybe you could just go solve it today. But then I do notice a lot of founders today say, I don't know what problem I want to solve. I want to go research a bunch of different problems. And I, I think that's actually quite interesting. Uh, and in that case, you know, maybe it does make sense to spend some time going to business school or some other areas because that gives you the time to then go find those problems. So I guess my, to summarize, I definitely think about it more from the problem standpoint and just say like, okay, well, if I want to solve these problems, whatever they are, like what's the best way to do it. And if I need to go to business school, if I need to go work at a startup to, to get that experience, I would do it. Super. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And I think your point about actually considering what are the credentials that you need and really experiencing the problem uh, really resonates with a lot of what, what we're seeing. Um, now I want to turn to diversity. Berenice, you mentioned that this is something you've been really passionate about. Um, from our numbers, we have roughly 32% women uh, in different startup companies that responded in this survey, and the numbers obviously get lower when you look at technical roles. Um, I'm actually interested to know because there is, there's always, you know, some talk about does gender actually impact performance, and is this also the direction of consumer trends? And so ultimately, having more diversity is actually going to impact company performance in the long run. Um, Berenice, what are your thoughts on that? You know, I think that um, the, the diversity in a team will definitely have an impact, I think, on, on the company uh, in the long run, um, and especially when it comes to uh, the returns that they generate. And I, I, you know, I think that it's been proven over and over again that diverse teams uh, outperform those that aren't diverse. Um, and so I think, you know, even if you don't really care about having a diverse uh, team, then it's just really in your interest and in your backers' interests. Um, I do think that diversity of, of, of thought, uh, you know, breeds innovation. So, you know, whether it comes to, to gender or ethnicity or sexual orientation or uh, differently abled people or, uh, you know, neurodiverse individuals who, for example, like you, you have... Um, people who are high on the spectrum and have outstanding capabilities for pattern recognition and concentrating a really long time on something. Uh, but, you know, they need a perhaps a, a certain um, context or setting and working environment in order to really thrive. So I think it's really, you know, the startups... Um, should should be mindful of these different things and try to adapt to the different needs of their talents uh, because all of that will just you know uh, like um, regroup kind of these these diverse thoughts and really help the company to thrive and reach more customers yeah i totally agree with you drew what do you think yeah i mean i think it's um it, i agree i also think like more and more this is becoming the standard right like i think if your company does not promote these types of values around diversity, um, it's difficult to attract talent. And, and that's, you know, not the only reason to, to do this, but it, it's certainly like sort of an obvious one to me now is that, you know, all of our companies are, are facing these questions from employees, from investors, from themselves and their friends and family. And so um, I just think it's so critical in the modern day and age to be a company that has the right values around diversity and inclusion. Um, it's something that at Bessemer we've been doing an enormous amount of work around the past, really the past year to kind of point the lens and in, in, into ourselves and say, are we doing enough? And I think also encouraging our portfolio companies to think about it. So it's obviously, you know, it's not great to see that only <laughs> such a small portion of, of, of co-founders are women. And we have many other gender statistics that are, that are kind of pretty, pretty sad, frankly, but um, I think we're all of us in the industry and, and definitely a best trying to move that number 
forward. And, and it's really both because we think it's important and because we think it's better for our companies as well. Super. Well, you kind of lead me to my next question. What what are funds actually doing today to, to move the needle? I mean, are you guys um, encouraging more diversity on cap tables? Are you do you have actually some quotas in place? What do you what are you guys doing to approach this problem? I mean, I think that and, and just this kind of also uh, segues from the from the previous point, I think that if you want, you know, to back more uh, diverse teams and have a more diverse portfolio, it, it, it's also a question of, you know, this sort of top down approach. I mean, I think there needs to be more diversity at the LP level. There needs to be more diversity at the GP level. And all of that will kind of funnel down to funding uh, more diverse teams. So I think that, you know, what VC firms have been doing and are, are doing more and more is is just hiring um, you know, more diverse investors. So, you know, and, and, and no offense to anyone out there who has that profile, but hiring the sort of ex-investment banker or consultant white male as an investor over and over again won't necessarily lead to a more diverse deal flow. And so I think that whether it's hiring more women or hiring, you know, underrepresented individuals from different minorities or also just individuals with different backgrounds, you know, all of that means having different, different networks and a more diverse um, deal flow. And so I think that that's, you know, it, it really does also come to hiring diverse talent um, at, the, at the fund level on the investment team. Yeah. Juve? Yeah, spot on. I think that's exactly kind of where my original comment was coming from. And I think us, along with many other, you know, funds in, in the in the space have started to think about our own team composition. And I think it's also important to um, to know that it's not just the junior, you know, the junior investors, it's also the GPs and the and the uh, and the managing partner group as well. And and typically you might see at a lot of these funds like a quite a diverse actually uh, group of junior investors, but then if you look at the very top it still ends up being quite, you know, pretty much the same looking type folks. And so I think we have done, in retrospect, probably a better job of starting to think about more diverse recruiting on our um, junior investment team at Bessemer. But we still have a lot of work to do on how that actually translates into um, partners and GPs and, and, and so on and so forth. Um, just on your question of what else, what else are we doing? I think um, first of all, we can always be doing more. So I think this is very early days. I think we 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 start to work with a few outside um, consultants actually to help us think through some of these questions. But one of them is just measurement, like what you know, measuring how is our fund performing on these types of metrics. I think this study is a great example of like the type of numbers that we need to be looking at across Bessemer and our portfolio companies as well. Um, and then you know, the second thing is hiring, as we talked about making a bigger focus on DNI in the hiring process. What types of interview questions are we asking? You know, is our, is our process um, fair to, to candidates from outside of different, uh, different backgrounds? Uh, we certainly have a great process for some candidates, but maybe not for others. And then also in our due diligence process, I think, again, just kind of asking our questions, the way we ask questions, the way we do our diligence, um, you know, are there ways that we can be more inclusive in that process? Um, I think we're like at stage zero of all of these things. Like we just we just started talking about them for the first time internally over the past year. We also started in our term sheets, um, including a D, you know diversity and inclusion clause, which sort of stipulates that you know the board and and the the CEO are agreeing to um, to make best efforts in in including uh, in creating a diverse atmosphere and and hiring and things like that. But um, I you know I think this is just very 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 early. Like we have a lot more to do. And it starts with measurement, it starts with conversations, and it does start, I believe, with hiring the right people um, within our team. So I think um, I agree with everything that, that Bernie said. I, I think we, we have a lot of work to do, though. Just quickly, maybe to, to also give a concrete example with, with Visionaries Club, you know, I think it's different to, to, to Bessemer because, uh, you know, the fund launched officially two and a half years ago, so it's still very young. Um, but I think that the, you know, the two uh, GPs, Robert and, and Sebastian, quickly realized, uh, you know, that um, the investment team had to be more diverse. And I think that, you know, they were very intentional in terms of their next hires that it would have to be a woman. And so I think that, you know, say what you will, but the intentionality is very important here. And so whether that translates into quotas or just, you know, um, tapping into different networks or, uh, you know, just looking at uh, more and more a uh, broader set of uh, job applications 
applications. And, you know, they uh, they brought me on as a VC in residence and they brought on, a, a, you know, a, a very smart and sharp uh, mind with uh, Sahar Meghani as, as the principal of our growth fund. And but they were intentional about it. They said, we're you know, for these two roles, we're going to hire women. And so I think that at some point, you know, the intentionality uh, is key. Yeah. And that's something we're actually seeing a lot in the ecosystem is actually very intentional hiring. I'm noticing a lot more companies being very intentional about diversity on cap table, diversity within the co-founding team. Um, so definitely seeing that trickle down. And, and Dhruv, I agree with you, it's early days, but so promising to hear how much you guys are already doing. I think um, it's really great to see funds being so aware and so careful also with regards to, to what they're doing in the diversity space. Um, I'm going to move now to hiring because I think obviously no surprise that the majority of roles that our startups were hiring for were tech positions, but actually a lot also said that they struggled to hire for sales and marketing. And when we shared these numbers uh, publicly, it was quite interesting to see that the general public still thinks startups, tech, that's it. Um, what do you guys think about, or first of all, what do you guys think about the fact that sales and marketing is number two? And what do you see as effective ways for us to actually go out and and find those profiles that are now in really high demand? Yeah, I mean, um, I'm happy to, to jump in here. I think, I guess what we've seen in the past year and, you know, curious about others is just a relentless competition in the market for, for good talent. And it's not just at the engineering level. Um, I think it's definitely at the sales level. In particular, sales is so important to our companies. Many of our companies are software, you know, software as a service SaaS companies. And um, we're just finding that, you know, these sales leaders and sales and marketing leaders are just, um, they're becoming better and better, but they're becoming more and more sought after. And so I think it's sort of like a rising tide lifts all ships. Like the market is so hot for talent that we're seeing across the board what maybe where we just used to see that level of competition in, in software and for developers, like we're seeing the same level of competition just for, for anyone these days. Um, and so I'm, I'm actually not surprised that you're seeing it in, in other functional areas. It just sort of aligns with what we're seeing as well in terms of the competition. Bernice? Yeah, I, I think like maybe just taking the UK as an example. I mean, I think that, you know, the country has taken a massive hit, uh, you know, whether it's through COVID or Brexit. And I think, you know, there's been a pretty big exodus of talent of people just, you know, going back to their home countries, for example, because now they need a working visa in order to stay uh, in the UK because the, the Schengen law doesn't apply anymore. So I think that there, there, there is an increasingly massive shortage of talent. I think that to some extent today we're seeing much more of remote working. So, uh, you know, I, I, I think that people can work remotely from whichever country um, they live in. But in terms of, um, of, of of hiring and retaining talent, I mean, I think at Visionaries we really try, obviously, to be super supportive uh, for all our portfolio companies and share within our networks and try to find, you know, resources and connect them to people. And I think that. For example, in terms of diversity, like 50 in Tech uh, is an incredible platform where you can find, you know, uh, women in tech that are sourced and vetted by the platform and then matched with the right company. So I think that you have a lot of, um, you know, different uh, communities and organizations that source incredible, incredibly, uh, you know, diverse uh, tech talent. And in, in terms of, you know, the, the sales and marketing uh, roles, you know, really being sought after, I think it's not surprising because, Europe has become such a competitive uh, landscape. You know, it's 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 really kind of the place to be. And you're seeing like all the big VC firms uh, move over here and open headquarters uh, in London. And so I think that, you know, startups need to hire top sales and marketing people because it's just so much more um, of an aggressive competition and, and you have to sell more aggressively. Yeah, I think that was a great shout out to uh, 50 in Tech, which is a, a great station of company. Um, Obviously, I think that we're seeing, you know, hiring is getting super competitive and we're going to come to how this impacts salaries and, and different uh, kind of uh, packages that, that are being offered today in just a minute. But I actually wanted to hear, do you guys feel that from, I mean, we're talking about tech marketing sales roles, are there other roles that are actually equally as difficult to hire for that maybe are not represented in these results? For example, I do hear a lot of companies complain about the lack of product profiles or uh, specific C-level positions. Are those also things that you guys are witnessing on the ground? Yeah, yes. <laughs> um, like head of people is hard. I think super important these days to get your head of people super early, much earlier than every, everyone used to think like, oh, by the Series B, Series C, you need to have a head of people, like actually maybe you need to have them by Series A because 
just so important to start getting recruiting right. So I found that challenging. And then any like C level position, especially in Europe for um, for anything around sales and revenue, like chief revenue officer, CFO is historically very difficult to hire a good CFO. So um, I think in particular, I actually find that in Europe, like the product engineering tends to be actually quite strong in terms of talent pool. But as you go up on the C-suite side for, uh, you know, head, you know, chief revenue officer, head of sales, things like that, I think it becomes really tough. So um, I, I think we're just seeing it. My perspective is we're seeing it across almost every every single one, which isn't really an insight. It's more just a comment on how crazy the market is. Super. And I, I love yeah, that advice I, for head of people. Berenice, tell us. No, sorry, sorry. And totally agree on, on head of people. Super, so important to, um, you know, to make sure that uh, you, you hire the right people and, 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 and retain them by, um, you know, providing the right uh, set of values and, and, um, and everything. But I think that um, in terms of, uh, you know, the, what I've heard quite a lot from, from startups that, you know, are in their series A, B, C, you know, kind of past that seed stage is that, you know, they, they regret not bringing on more sort of senior high-level execs early, early on, like really at the beginning. So, you know, which could be, for example, potentially a co-founder, but, um, and saying that, you know, they kind of, they've taken on more, more junior people um, at the beginning that, you know, whether they've had to train or, you know, it didn't work out. And so I think that, you know, that's where the, you know, the salary or the comps or the benefits uh, are super important, I think, to be in place early on to be able to attract, you know, that maybe more experienced talent that can just, you know, help you, uh, you know, start uh, hit the ground running uh, from the very start. Super. Dhruv, I know you have to leave, so I'm going to move on to the last two topics very quickly. Um so we talked about scarcity, obviously, uh, for some of the different roles, but how is this actually being treated? Is this just is the only way to fix this problem, to bump up salaries and, and to, to go and essentially hire people that are currently in, in some of these jobs? What do you guys see happening on the ground? From what we saw in terms of results um, is that we do see that salaries are being pumped up. We're seeing a lot more companies actually using employee stock option plans uh, than previously in Europe. So today those numbers are um, roughly 59% of the companies that responded to our survey and a lot more that are planning to put them into place for the early stage companies. Are those essentially the only tools that, that people are using? Um, I mean, I think that, yes, the, you know, the financial incentives are super important because, you know, with these employee stock option plans, uh, you know, you feel like you're obviously part of the company. And so it's it's in your interest to, uh, you know, um, you know, work well and thrive so that the company um, thrives as well. But I think, you know, we've really entered and especially in this kind of weird COVID post COVID time. Um, you know, in a time where people have just really hit pause and said, okay, what really matters, you know, in my life, you know, it's, it's family, it's friends, it's relationships, it's doing what I love. And so I think that, you know, the set of values around all of these, uh, you know, life events has, has also increased. And I think that, you know, startups and companies uh, are, you know, it, paying attention more and more and whether that translates into employee benefits, for example, that cater to mental health or to women's health, uh, you know, for example, helping them through their different life stages, whether, you know, it's fertility, pregnancy, or menopause, I think that, you know, really uh, catering to, uh, to, to the different uh, needs and, um, uh, and, and, and set of values, especially when you're going into the, the sort of Gen Z um, and, and younger millennials, uh, you know, this is a generation that genuinely cares about what they do and the impact that it has at large. So, um, I think that there's definitely more that uh, startups, you know, are and if they're not, should be offering um, to hire and retain talent. Yeah. And I think the the women's health is a great one, although very controversial and hasn't really yeah. arrived, I feel, in Europe. Um, but Drew, what are you seeing? <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I guess just to like kind of play this out a few more years, I think what I'm what I'm guessing is that over time, really good talented people are going to start to fractionalize their time and, and start working in multiple jobs. And I, and I, and I'm, I've just been thinking about this more and more as I think about how difficult it is to recruit people because the option cost, you know, the optionality or the, the, the other things they could be doing with their time are just so much more valuable to them. And so, you know, maybe you don't hire a CFO, maybe you just, you know, retain a CFO for a few hours a month and that's all you need. And, you know, I just think like the very, very best people may, end up just fractionalizing their time and working in multiple jobs because the environment's so hot and maybe companies will have to get more used to that 
idea of working with people on a part-time basis as opposed to a full-time basis, unless we just, uh, you know, because there just aren't that many, even if there are so many new people joining the market, there aren't that many good people. The number of good people is still fairly low. So it just, it just seems like, you know, something has to give in order for those people to be able to be employed and maybe they'll just split their time. And just to quickly add on that, so sorry, but it's so interesting what you're saying, Drew, in terms of fractionalizing your time, because, you know, we, um, we just looked at a company that basically helps, uh, you know, other companies uh, with job sharing. And so I think that I, I really think that that's where we're heading, whether it's, you know, due to COVID, remote work or caregivers, new parents, people with disabilities, or just, you know, the creators with the creator economy who want to have a side gig. I think that job sharing is is and sharing the set of skills um, is, is really going to become the new normal in the next few years. Super. Well, I find that you guys led me perfectly to our last topic, uh, which is remote work. And obviously, if we're talking about uh, time sharing, you know, freelancing, however you want to call it, um, we also have a question of remote. What does it mean to actually work for a company um, that's changing a lot? So 90% of the companies that responded, so this is just huge compared to all the other numbers we got, were favorable, obviously, to remote work. But we did have 2% that in the long run are unfavorable um, to any kind of remote work and probably is also impacted by uh, their activity, but maybe also impacted by how they view company culture and a number of other things. Do you guys, are you guys favorable with regards to what you you tell your companies? Do you think that this is the way that we should be telling people to to hire and to run their teams? Well, I guess I, I my, my honest answer is I just don't know. Like, I guess I've seen, we, we've now been in COVID for about a year, year and a half, maybe two years, gosh, almost two years. But, um, but uh, you know, I guess we've seen companies that have gone fully remote and we still don't know yet if that's going to be successful. I, I think it's anyone who says it's successful today is probably, it's probably a little too early to tell. But I do think we have seen companies who are fully remote before COVID. And those, we have one company in our portfolio called Zapier, and they are 150 you know, plus employee company, completely remote prior to COVID. And it's, it's at scale. It's, you know, they've, they've scaled quite, quite nicely. Um, so I think it's possible. And in that, in that case, like they've been doing it for almost six, seven years. So like they figured out a way to do it. But um, I just like, I, I am a little wary of recommending uh, our companies do full remote at this stage because I just don't know, um, you know, what are the implications of that in a year or two years or three years. So it's kind of like a non-answer. I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I agree with Drew in the sense that we just don't have, uh, you know, the the. Um... Le recul. I don't know how you say in English. <laughs> um, it's it's hard to zoom out at this time because we know we're still in it and we haven't really seen you know how it's impacted the way we work. I think that you know, in my opinion, uh, a happy team makes a happy company. And so, you know, if, if you give people the option to work, uh, you know, more flexible hours or, you know, remote uh, so that they can, you know, deal with different things in their lives and they can work when they're most productive, you know, whether that's at midnight or at five in the morning, I think that in the long term that will benefit the company. But, you know, just speaking from personal experience, I was I was hired remotely by Visionaries Club. I, you know, they're based in Berlin. I'm based in London, and it's been going extremely well. Um, and I think that also with someone who who lives with a disability, I'm I'm visually impaired. It's it's harder for me to navigate everyday life. And so being able to work remote uh, from home is is it, it relieves a lot of stress and just allows me to be much more productive and efficient. So. I would just share my personal experience in this context. Super. Well, I think that's a really great note to end on because obviously it's early days for a lot of the stuff that we mentioned and it's changing so, so quickly. So I feel like if we ask these same questions in two weeks, maybe some of the answers will already be different. Um, but I will keep in mind that remote is still early days and I think we'll stick to that for all of our companies as well. Thank you both for being here. It was a pleasure having you with us. Thank you so much for having us, Roxanne. Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for Roxanne and um, Berenice, I, I didn't realize you were based in London, so we'll have to we'll have to meet in person soon, hopefully. Definitely, I'd love to. Awesome. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in today. This podcast is supported by TikTok. If you like this episode, make sure to leave us many, many stars. We are available on all your usual podcast platforms, including Apple, Google, Spotify, and Deezer. And if you have any speaker requests, feel free to ping us on Twitter or at press at stationf.co.